0: Ephesians 5 verse 22 Paul says wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husband husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I've been around the block 45 years as a pastor, and I think I can tell you without reservation that that is, in my mind, one of the most misunderstood and maligned passages in all of Scripture. I vividly remember counseling young couples. There's this young man, young woman who are about to get married and I was reviewing with them some words of scripture that talks about God's gift of love and marriage and when I got to this I remember on a couple that was more than one occasion I actually heard a groan <laughs> a hiss a boo I said you're booing St. Paul they didn't like what I was saying they didn't like what St. Paul had written they just didn't like it at all To the modern liberated ear, Paul's words sound impossibly archaic, out of touch with reality. It's so old-fashioned, it's it's a joke. To many, Paul is a radical chauvinist advocating male superiority. You know why he didn't get married? He hated women! (laughs) What I pointed out to them is that, indeed, they were correct in calling Paul's words radical. Because in the years of the people he was writing to in Ephesus, all this stuff indeed sounded like far-out radical thinking. See, Ephesus is in the far western part of what today we call Turkey. And in those days, it was steeped in Greek culture. Greek culture had covered the world, and this is just barely east of Greece those people understood greek culture greek thinking greek values greek philosophy in greek philosophy men meant everything males meant everything antiquity showed that noble greek fathers allowed their infants to die of exposure they would take them on top of mountains and just leave them to the elements to the wild animals because they thought their child was imperfect What's a perfect child anyway? I'm not sure. Or if that child was guilty of the horrible sin of being female, everybody wants a boy, I guess. That's been around forever and ever. Wives were considered in Greek culture husbands' property. You owned your wife. You ordered your wife. When Paul says, Love your wife, they went, What is he talking about? For the men, extramarital relationships were considered accepted and to be expected. Kind of like when I was a kid growing up, every man smoked. I mean, you had real men smoked. Well, in Greek culture, real men always had a mistress or two or three or four that was expected. Divorcing a wife required no legal action beyond simply dismissing her in the presence of two witnesses. It was virtually the same as it was in Jewish culture in the Old Testament. In Paul's days, rabbis sat around the table, sat around the circle debating, get this, whether or not women had a soul. We all know men have a soul, but do women have a soul? And to this day, there is an Orthodox prayer that Orthodox Jews pray in the morning when they get up thanking God for a whole host of things, and one of them is, thank you, God, I was not born a woman. What? Really? Sadly, such subjugation of women is still with us today. I'm not breaking any news to you when I say that, am I? The long list of modern-day abuses of women and wives is so well-known. Wives are beaten, females are molested, female laborers are denied fair wages simply for reason of gender, and we haven't even mentioned the emotional and psychological abuse that so many have to endure. Do I have to tell you what faces women and girls in Afghanistan? Frankly, we're just terrified for that. Makes me shudder. And worse, some people perpetrate that kind of nonsense thinking, and they use our text as proof. Years ago, Pastor Ken Bacon, he was one of the sons of John W. Bacon, one of the presidents of our Synod years ago. Ken Bacon wrote a sermon on this text, and let me quote from it, quote, Many a male ego has stormed into a marriage relationship writing a portion of this text for all its worth. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Boy, they like that one. They're quick to let the wife know who's going to be the boss. With patriarchal pride, they stride up to the throne and begin to dominate the relationship with their nonverbal and sometimes verbal demands, which boldly proclaim, My will be done. Such an understanding completely misses, indeed it abuses Paul's intent. Let me make it clear to you. When Paul wrote these words to the men and women of Corinth and Ephesus years ago, he was sounding quite radical. The abuse and devaluation of women is foreign to the New Testament. You cannot substantiate any of it from the pages of the New Testament. You can't. The Gospels showed the glorious way Jesus elevated the status of women. He treated them with dignity, never anything less than precious citizens of God's kingdom. In John's gospel, we have the account where he's passing through the land of Samaria. Now, why any good standing Jew wanted to go through Samaria in the minds of every other Jew was a great mystery. But we're talking about Jesus, who came to seek and to save the lost. That everybody. And so he says, guys, we're going through Samaria. And they got to a place where Jacob's well had been dug by Jacob and his boys years and years and years. Years before he sent his disciples into town to go buy lunch. I don't know, open or not, but they, they buy lunch and bring it back out, and meanwhile, he struck up a conversation, remember, with the Samaritan woman. I knew. And he says, Lady, can I have a, a glass of water? And, and, uh, and she says, Why would you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for anything? She was shocked. That wasn't expected. But she had never dealt with Jesus before And later, when she had left, all excited about her conversation with this Jesus rabbi, who she thought, could he possibly be the Messiah? The disciples returned from their buying uh, trip, and it says, they were surprised to see Jesus talking with, and I expect the text to say, with a Samaritan. That's not what John wrote, and John had been there. John said, they were surprised to see that Jesus was talking with a woman. Because you wouldn't expect a rabbi to do that, but they had never dealt with Jesus before. He was cut out of a completely different bolt of thought. If we're honest with Paul's writings, he can never be made out to be a chauvinistic male. Radical. Perhaps a classic proof of that is in his first epistle to the Christians who lived in Corinth. Let me remind you, Corinth is in Greece, so this really was the heart of Greek culture. We, where he discusses the nature of the physical relationship between husband and wife, and he says, the wife's body, this is a quote from Paul, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but to her husband. And I can see the, the, the Jews in Corinth going, yeah, you tell Paul, you got that one right he immediately follows it up with in the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife at which point those old Greeks had to go what? I thought he had it right he's got it all wrong I didn't, he, he didn't really say that did he? to their Greek ears that was radical stuff. love your wife? no I own my wife I boss my wife, love my wife, die for my wife? They had never heard that before. That was completely foreign to their Greek culture ears. Paul would have said, well, if you think it's radical, so be it. Indeed, Paul urges us and his audience to get radical with God's word. The word radical, you see, comes from the Latin word radix, R-A-D-I-X, which means Root. So in our text, Paul urges us to understand marriage by recalling its roots. What are the roots of marriage? We gotta go to Genesis 2. First marriage, first wedding. It's not good for Adam to be alone. That's an odd statement for God to make. In all of chapter one, it says, God looked at this first day, it was all good. Second day, it was good. Good, 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 good. He gets to the end of day six, and he says, behold, it was all very good. God had done everything right! Then you get to the beginning of chapter 2 and and God says, it's not good. You go, but what? It's, It's not that he had made something wrong. He hadn't made something. It's not good for the man to be alone. I got squirrels, I got elephants, I got hippopotami, I got whatever you want, but I only got one human being. There's something missing! so God solved that. He gave Eve to Adam. She was a great gift. And having received Adam's ribs, she was indeed bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. God made them to be loving, sharing, caring companions and partners. That's what God envisions marriage to be. First of all, marriages provides the model for all unions ever since. Sadly and tragically, however, there was another root that wound up affecting their relationship because Adam, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, they had a root problem called sin. And that absolutely affected everything in their relationship. So Paul urges us to recall our root problem of sin. In their sins, spouses become not sharing companions, but warring competitors. The late speaker of the Lutheran Hour, Dr. Oswald C.J. Hoffman, once wrote, the husband regards his wife, consciously or unconsciously, as the one who cooks his meals, cleans his home, washes his clothes, raises his children, and nags him about things that need fixing. And the wife regards him as the one who brings home a paycheck, mows the lawn, repairs leaky faucets, and puts his feet up on her good coffee table. (laughs) And the God-designed union of bodies becomes not a celebration of their oneness, but an arena of power and pride. Yikes! What happened to God's design? Many get the idea that if marriage is to work, then it has to become an arrangement between equals. It's a 50-50 proposition. Husband has to give 50%, wife has to give 50%. If that's the way it works, then it's going to be okay. We adopt unisex clothes, height, uh, hairstyles, lifestyles. It'll all be fine if everybody gives their 50%. But if the contract and its provisions are abused by either with less than a 50-50 effort, well then, chop Get out of this. Try it. To that kind of modern nonsense, Paul says, remember God's radical solution to your radical problem of sin. If you want to know what radical looks like, just look at Jesus. Christ. Loved the church. And gave himself up for her. That's what he wrote in our text. God's response to your worthlessness. My rebellion. Our sin. Was to say. I'm going to give myself up for you. Because you're more important than I am. You're going to get to live. So I'll die so that you get to live. You know. That doesn't seem to follow. I know that's what grace is about. That doesn't mean Jesus told people, I'll give you a 50-50 proposition for your salvation. Tell you what, if you do 50%, I'll do 50%, and then if we all do our parts, then you could be saved. Yikes! <laughs> We're dead ducks. Remember, he looked down upon us, and he looked, is there anybody out there who is good, who does only good, no evil? Nope, not one! If Jesus said, "Why, girl, well, I'll save you ninety-nine percent of the way; one left up to you," I'm a dead duck. So are you. We'd screw it up, sure. Shoot. We don't have what it takes. Somewhere, somehow, some way, I would mess it up. Jesus never had the thought. I'll just do ninety-nine percent. You do one. Let alone 50-50. He said, I'll save you all the way. I'll do everything it takes to save you. You just take it from me. My gift. Wow. Paul says to the Philippians, Christ made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In his rich grace, Christ has cleansed us through baptism and daily forgiveness of all of our sins. He knows only one way to be the church's savior and husband, and that's all the way. All the way. His blood paid for every sin of which we are so guilty. His love has committed him to us at all times, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness in it at the waters of Holy Baptism, they keep moving on me, there it is. (laughs) At the waters of Holy Baptism, God claimed you and he said, I'm marrying you. That's New Testament language, by the way. The relationship between Christian and Christ is considered a marriage. Just like in the scripture, Old Testament, God's relationship between Yahweh and his people, Israel, was considered a marriage. At Mount Sinai, God married the people of Israel. In baptism, he married you. And on that day he said, I will ca- listen, listen to me, I will never sue you for divorce. and happy. I will always love you and forgive you. But you can sue him. Why would you do that? He's the only Savior you have. He's the only chance you have. Don't throw him away. Cling to him. Cling to him. In view of such a love in Jesus, Paul finally urges us to adopt Jesus' radical approach to life in our marriages. I'm not God's gift to my wife. She's God's gift to me.
1: It's not so much I chose her.
0: God chose her and said, here, run. Here's Jean. She's my very special gift to you. Husbands, you are the recipients of a great gift from God. It's called your wife. Wives, you're the recipient of a great gift from God. It's called your husband. Cherish that gift. Live for that gift. The key to our text, you see, is the verse that was left off. I don't know why they do this. The epistle lesson for today begins with verse 22 Wives submit to your husbands to, as to the Lord. And I, I, I'm suggesting to you that it's, it's probably already set you up for a misunderstanding because it's the verse before that sets the tone. And verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the, the goal that God sets up for us. Submit to one another. See, the word submit in, in, in Greek is hippo tasso. Hippo means under and tasso means to place. You place something under something else. So scripture would say we've got this one called God the Father and one called God the Son. Remember them? And God, the Son said, I will serve you, Father, totally equal. did not lose his equality with being God. He's God of God, light of light, very God of very God. But he became incarnate, and as the incarnate Son of God, he became one who came to do the will of the Father. We'll read him, oftentimes in John's Gospel, saying things like, I can only do what the Father allows me to do. I have come to do the will of the Father. But then he'll turn around and he'll say a couple verses later, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Because they're totally equal. But these equals, the one placed himself under the will of the Father. When you submit to somebody, you place yourself under them. You say, I'm here to love you. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to make your life as wonderful, as sweet, as pleasant as it possibly can be. Husbands, that's your job for your wife. Your attitude toward your wife. Wife, that's your attitude towards your husband. You live for each other. Should wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord? Well, of course, what else is a Christian wife supposed to do? Should husbands submit themselves to the care of their wife, to the love of their wife, to say, my job is to make your life as pleasant as it can be? Of course, what else would a husband do? If you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus of Nazareth, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, what else would you do? His is not the kind of love that asks, what will the church do for me? But what can I do for the church? In a very real way, Jesus, who is clearly our superior, came and he placed himself under the church. That's you. He said, you know, I'm going to die so you get to live. I will subject myself to all the things that you deserve by your sin. I'll take all your punishment because I want you to live. That's the same as saying, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Same thing. And if you're sitting there going, gee, this is a nice sermon, but I'm not married. <laughs> <laughs> I'm single. I'm a widow. I'm a widower. I'm something. I, I mean, maybe I should have heard this 25 years ago or 50 years ago, but I, I'm not married. Can't you understand when he says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, these, these values spill over to everything in our life? Should children submit themselves to their parents? Well, of course, that's the fourth commandment, silly. Should parents submit themselves to their children? Live for their children? Do all they can to help their children succeed? Well, what else would a parent do? That's the relationship of employer and employee. If you're a Christian employer, you've got your hands full Serving those people who are working for you. Wow. That's your attitude towards your neighbor. Not just the nice neighbor on the right side, but that guy on the left. You're supposed to live for him, help him, influence him, love him, serve him. But you don't understand, Pastor, he's a real. (laughs) I know. There's no limit to love one another, serve one another, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's no limit to that. That's not weakness. That's strength. Shakespeare once said, if two men ride on a horse, one must ride behind. (laughs) Well, yeah, I, I understand that. So what's God's vision of the horse? In a Christian home, as with any institution, somebody has to assume leadership or headship. Headship is not the same as lordship. The husband is not the lord of the house. Sorry. Christ is the lord. We place ourselves under him. He says, okay, and place yourself under one another. Early... Um, Paul says, remember, husband, that God wants your leadership, your headship, to be like my sons to my church. Early church, Father Chrysostom wrote to husbands, if it's needful that you give your life for your wife or to be cut to pieces a thousand times or endure endure anything, don't refuse it. Christ brought the church to his feet by his great love and care, not by threats of fear. So conduct yourself toward your wife, Christus son says, in like manner. So we often hear things like, you know, it takes two to make a marriage. I think St. Paul would say, au contraire. <laughs> it takes three. Husband, wife. Jesus. And without Jesus, you're never going to really know what marriage is supposed to be. If that's old-fashioned and archaic, so be it. It is still the truth, thank God. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, God, for the gift of marriage. Thank you for the gift of my spouse, my children, my parents, my siblings, my friends, my neighbors, ooh, and even my enemies. All opportunities for me to show what your love is really all about, especially today we think about our spouse. Help me, O Lord, to live for him, for her. Help me to do all that I can to support him or her in this life that you have given to us. Help me to remember this person is your gift to me. And like all of our gifts, we're to treat them with love and respect. We ask it all in the name who shows us how to do that, your son, our savior, who saves us from all our awful failures So that, empowered by your grace and mercy, we can do again and again and again, every day, the opportunity, seize the opportunity to live life here.